Well, hey everyone, my name is Norton and you are listening to the New Denver Church Podcast. And we're in a series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. So uh, today is part 6b um, and we are going to revisit Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. Now, <clears throat> if you just happen to uh, stumble across this podcast or someone suggested it to you, um, then you need to go back to the beginning and uh, listen to the whole series uh, because we're, we're exploring the ancient book of Leviticus. And a lot of the things that we've been talking about build on one another because we're just going through the book chronologically or sequentially. Um, and at the very least, if you have, if you don't have time to listen to all the messages and you're just jumping in, uh, go back and listen to part six, because in part six, we covered a whole lot of ground in that message. We looked at five chapters of Leviticus that contain some of the strangest laws in the book of Leviticus. So chapter 11 is about which foods Israelites could eat and which ones they could not eat. Chapter 12 is about what a woman should do after giving birth. Chapters 13 and 14 were about skin diseases and mold growing in your house and what to do if you discover either of those things. And then chapter 15 was about uh, male and female bodily discharges uh, related to disease uh, or to sexual activity or to one's reproductive system. So uh, it was a crazy uh, five chapters we read and talked about. And here's what we saw. There are all kinds of things that are described in these chapters as being taboo for ancient Israel. Now, usually the Hebrew word that's translated all throughout these chapters is the word unclean, um, but the word taboo might be more helpful. I talked about that because uh, these things were not wrong or sinful or dirty or somehow morally bad. They were just things that could harm you or dilute you or compromise you in some way. And, and for some of these things, it's very clear when you lose a lot of blood or you have some sort of oozing skin rash. Uh, right, the Leviticus saying that that could compromise you. That that might be dangerous to you in some ways, or there are certain foods that you should not eat. That was a bigger question. How those might compromise you? But essentially, these chapters are saying there is a system that you will have Israel for taking these things seriously and dealing with them. So. We talked all about that in part six, and there was a whole lot there. Uh, this is part 6B, which is sort of extra content, um, all the stuff I wish we could have talked about, but we didn't have time. And I want to add a couple of things to that discussion, and then um, we're going to spend some time looking at some passages in the New Testament and exploring how did Jesus think about these laws in this part of Leviticus, and then what did followers of Jesus think about these laws? And of course, that definitely affects how we should think about them today. So I'm going to try and cover a ton of ground. I've got a bunch of thoughts, and uh, they're a bit scattered, so we'll see how all of this works. So um, first, I want to look at chapter 11 of Leviticus again. This is the one chapter that was all about food. Um because this is the one that's probably comes up more than anything else. Uh, this is all about which foods you could eat if you were an Israelite, which foods you cannot. Some animals were called clean or pure, and so you know, go for it. You can eat any of those. Other animals are called unclean or taboo, meaning those are off limits. Do not touch them, the, the carcasses of any of those animals, if you happen to come across one on the trail or in the wilderness, and definitely do not eat any of those animals. And I gave you some suggestions for why some animals are considered pure and others are considered taboo, because we read the list and we're confused by it, right? It just seems arbitrary. It seems random. It's never spelled out exactly why you can eat the meat of cattle and goats and sheep, but you cannot eat the meat of pigs. Why you can eat fish that have scales and fins, right? But you cannot eat other sea creatures like shrimp or crab that don't have scales or fins. And, and there's been volumes after volumes of scholarly literature about this um, because I think everyone reads it and says, this can't just be random, 
right? It can't just be arbitrary. There has to be a good reason. Now, let me insert this idea. It's possible there is a good reason, and the good reason was just not included in the text of Leviticus. It's possible that this reason is wrapped up in something cultural, and that reason or those ideas have been lost, and we just will never know them. And this is true of all ancient history. There are things that people do in ancient history that we see that they've done or they do or ways that they think, and there's got to be a reason behind it. We just don't know what that reason is. Nobody ever wrote it down. And, and, and because writing things down was, was, was expensive and hard to do, you know, the farther back in history you go, uh, perhaps it was written down and it was never um, uh, maintained. Perhaps it wasn't written down. It was never recorded. Perhaps it's just been lost. But the farther back you go, the less artifacts or writings we have. And so we just have to acknowledge that might be frustrating to us, that there had to be a good reason behind this, and we just don't know what it is. But that's just the nature of of history. So keep that in mind. Um, but obviously, there's still going to be a lot of speculation. So uh, the two most compelling reasons, and I mentioned these, and I'm just going to briefly mention them again and, and move on. The two most compelling reasons for why these animals, but not these animals, are, um, are compelling, at least to me, are number one, these different categories of animals are related to Genesis 1 categories. So much of the language, especially if, if you were able to read Hebrew and see it, um, but even in English, you, if you start comparing the two chapters, you'll see there's so much of the similar language and ideas used in Leviticus 11 as there is in Genesis 1. So it's clear that ideas in Leviticus 11 are referencing ideas in Genesis 1. So maybe the categories are related somehow to creation categories in Genesis 1. Maybe that's the m- most important reason. But here's a second reason that these rules about these animals in Leviticus 11, they're definitely related to the Israelites being different from other people. These rules are, quote, for you, (laughs) Leviticus says over and over. These are for you as Israel. And then the whole passage ends by saying two times, God is saying to the people, be holy or be different because I am holy. I am different. So I want you to eat foods that are different than other people eat because that's how you're just going to declare and show yourselves to be different, right? Now, in both of these explanations, and I think it's both of these things, there's rarely just one reason. You know, there's 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 lots of reasons oftentimes. But in both of these explanations, there's something really important about the act of of distinguishing, of distinguishing between animals that are pure and animals that are taboo, making distinctions. There is a clear distinction between these animals and these animals, and in making this distinction, you will be making a distinction between you and other people, between the nation of Israel and other nations. And and this idea of of making distinctions, it's at the heart of these five chapters we read, right? I mean, remember how it starts. In chapter 10, God says to Aaron very clearly, you as high priest need to distinguish between the holy and the common, between what is pure and taboo or clean and unclean, and then you need to teach the people these distinctions as well. Teach people how to distinguish and make distinctions. And and really this idea of distinguishing or making distinctions is not just in these five chapters. It runs throughout all of Leviticus. I mean, it's just been fascinating the whole time. It's like, do this, don't do that. Stand here, not there. Burn these parts of the sacrifice, eat these parts of the sacrifice right? If you find yourself in this situation, bring this gift. If you find yourself in that situation, bring that gift. Uh, Set aside these people as priests, not these people. 
Take off these clothes and put on those clothes. Eat these animals, not those animals. If the rash turns this color, do this. If it turns that color, do that. It's just on and on it goes about these distinctions. And for some of us, uh, this can be overwhelming, right? It's it's tedious. It's repetitive. Um, I, I mean, you're reading it thinking, oh my gosh, how many examples random and arbitrary are we going to get of do this, don't do that. So it's it's repetitive, it's tedious, but it also seems really rigid, right? I mean, it just, it seems black and white. It's, it's kind of like you only have two options. You do this, but you don't do that, right? And, and that rubs some of us the wrong way. Like, I don't want just two options. And life isn't just black and white. There's all kinds of gray and, you know, all those kind of things. And uh, of course, it also feels arbitrary. And if we don't know the reason why you should do this and not that, then you just keep asking yourself over and over when you read Leviticus, why? Why? Why do the people have to stand here and not here? Why do the curtains have, have to be made? Like, this, it seems like a matter of life and death. They have to be made out of this fabric, not this fabric. And why do the priests have to do it in this order, not this order, right? And in fact, it actually seems like a matter of life and death in chapter 10. And then you get in chapter 11, and it's verse after verse after verse of you can eat these animals, but not those animals. And we just keep saying, why, 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 right? Why is Leviticus so consumed with making these distinctions. And ultimately, if you're a follower of Jesus or just a person of faith, right, this is a question that's raised about God. I mean, if these are really God's instructions to Israel, why is God so consumed with these people always making distinctions? What's the big deal about making distinctions? So that's a question I want to like ask and explore and, and, and even give you three reasons um, for why I think making distinctions is so important, so valuable, so good, and so necessary. Number one, distinctions are necessary for creation. So if you create anything, you have to make distinctions when you create. Here's an example. I like to paint. Um, I'm not great at it. I've just been doing it a few years. I'm, I'm an amateur, right? But if you've ever tried to paint something, uh, some of you might be artists out there. What's the first thing you do? You make distinctions, right? What's this painting going to be? Is it going to be a landscape? Is it going to be a portrait? Is it going to be a still life? Is it going to be an abstract painting? All right, what colors am I going to use? Am I going to use warm colors? Am I going to use cool colors? Should I use primary colors or secondary colors? Should I use analogous colors or complementary colors, right? And maybe you don't even know what that means because you're not a painter, but uh, you probably have painted something before. You've painted your kitchen walls, right? And when you painted your kitchen walls, you chose that one specific swatch at Sherwin-Williams or Benjamin Moore, right? Agreeable gray, Sherwin-Williams. Everyone's painting it. And and that means there are thousands of colors and swatches you did not choose. You made a distinction. Whenever you create in any form or fashion, you are choosing certain things and not choosing others. If you take a photograph... You're choosing this angle. You're choosing this composition, this lighting. You're using this aperture, this shutter speed, not that one, right? If you write music, you're choosing these chords in this combination, in this rhythm, in this many verses, and this, you know, you're choosing things as you go. If you make a piece of furniture, right, you are choosing this style, not that style. You're going to choose to use oak with a walnut stain or hickory with a cherry stain, but you're not doing both, right? you're, You're making some distinction. Maybe you cook a wonderful dinner for somebody else. That's an act of creation, right? 
When you make dinner, you're choosing some foods, not others. You're choosing to follow this recipe, not those hundreds of others you could have chosen. You're choosing to use these ingredients, not those, right? Every act of creativity requires making distinctions, making choices, making differentiations, setting things apart, separating this from that. That act is inherent in creating. In fact, it's the heart of creating to take a blank canvas and say, it's not going to be blank anymore. I'm going to paint bright reds over here. And I'm going to paint dark magentas over here, right? You are making distinctions and those distinctions are necessary for the act of creating. And we see this all throughout Genesis chapter 1. When God creates the world, what's he doing? He's making distinctions. One of the first things he does, it says he separates light from dark, There's not going to be just one thing anymore. Now there's going to be a distinction. There's going to be light and dark. There's going to be nights and days. Aren't we glad he created the world that way? That that we have not just night all the time or not just day all the time. We have night and then we have day. And then we have night and then we have day. And then he separated land from water and from sky. He made distinctions there. He made plants And he made animals. That's a distinction, right? Then he made distinctions between different kinds of plants. And then he made distinctions between different kinds of animals. And and, and I could go on and on. But if you read Genesis chapter 1, it's all about God separating things and making distinctions in his work of creation. And at every step, he steps back and he goes, man, this is good. The distinctions I just made there, those are good. That's because distinctions are necessary for any kind of creation. Now, number two thing about distinctions, why they're so necessary and helpful. Distinctions are necessary for redemption. Let's think about this for a little bit. When the people of Israel are in slavery, someone needs to stand up and say, this is not okay. This is unjust. This is not right. Something needs to change. We cannot go on living this way. We need to make a break from that system. We need to be saved and rescued from that system so that we can live in a new system, so that we can live a new life, and so that we can live under a new ordering of life. And the the language that's used here when you think about this and that when it comes to the the redemption of the people of Israel, it is categorically black and white, right? There is no nuance. There is, this is wrong, this is right. This way of life enslaves, this way of life leads to freedom. Think about the experience for a moment of an alcoholic Some of you can relate to this personally, or you've seen this up close. When someone's life gets tangled up in in addiction and abuse, and that that can be applied in lots of ways, but let's just think about an alcoholic for a second. You you really reach a point where there's only two options. (laughs) You can continue on this path, and that will ultimately lead to the way of self-destruction and death. And that's not overstating it. I have talked to people who have said that I was at the lowest point and I was this close to death. To continue on this path is the way of death. To be freed from this death requires a total life change and it is black and white. There is no gray. You have to check into a rehab facility. And when you check into that rehab facility, every single part of your life is about making choices and distinctions and your life and your death is hanging in the balance. And so you're told you get up and you have to eat breakfast. And that step of literally getting up and eating breakfast on day one is about choosing life, right? And if you were to choose to walk out of that facility and have one sip of beer, that would be the way of death, right? Anyone who's ever 
been in this situation or had any kind of experience with an addiction knows this is the reality. It is life and death. It is black and white. And every single choice that you make is pushing you in one direction or the other. And so redemption, rescue, liberation in these moments is about making very clear choices, very clear distinctions, right? I mean, think about it this way. Um, Other people might be able to drink a glass of wine, but for you, no, 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 no. That is off limits right now. I, I, I am, I, if I have even a sip of wine, it's back to the way of death for me. I can't even see it. I can't even be near it. I can't even be around people who are doing that right now. For me, that is awful. That is taboo. That is not a choice that I can make. That is not something that you are drawing very clear distinctions. Other people can stay out late. At night right now, I cannot stay out late. I need need to have a firm rule. I am home by 9 p.m. every night because if I'm not, that'll lead down the road to death, right? Other people can live their lives and do whatever they want right now. I cannot. I need to check into rehab and I have to have the most structured, ordered life possible for the next 30 days. I have a schedule and I have to follow it down to the very detail. It is that rigid. It is that clear, right? Distinctions, these kinds of distinctions are necessary for redemption. So distinctions are necessary for creation. They're necessary for redemption. But here's one more. Distinctions are necessary for stewardship and flourishing. And this is true in almost any area of life. Let's just think about the business world for a second. You work in business. You want your business to flourish? You you want your your company to flourish? You want your job, your, your team, your office? You want to flourish? You have to make distinctions. You have to say, you know what, we're gonna pursue these projects this quarter not those projects. You have to choose, right? There's 10 new ideas on the table today at the meeting. There's 10 new initiatives. We're going to choose three of them. We're not choosing these seven. It's not that these seven are inherently bad. It's just that they are bad for us right now, right? I mean, how many businesses, how many offices, how many how many teams of people um How many corporate environments have burned people out, have lost tons of money because nobody made distinctions, nobody made discernments, nobody said, we cannot do all of these things right now, we have to choose some. We cannot satisfy everyone right now, we have to choose to satisfy these people. We cannot work nonstop all the time, we have to choose some things we say yes to And some things we say no to. We will not be good stewards of the opportunities and the business that we have. We will not flourish unless we make clear distinctions. We say yes and we say no. Right? You can go through so many areas of our lives and think about this. Think about your money, right? Think about finances. Uh, Some of us have huge amounts of debt because we never said no. We never made distinctions between what's necessary and what's not, what's essential and what's luxury. We just kept buying. We we just kept spending and maybe no one ever taught you. Maybe we never learned how to say yes or no. And so we just said yes to everything. So, So think about what you have to do to address that. Think about the act of making a budget. When you make a budget, you're making distinctions. You're coming up with categories. You're making discernments. You're separating. I'm going to spend this amount of money in this category and no more. I'm going to spend this in this category and this on these things. And I'm not going to spend money on these things, right? If I want to get out of debt, I cannot go out to eat every single night. It's not that going out to eat at a restaurant is bad. It's just bad for me right now. I can't buy a new car right now. 
It's not that buying a new car is bad. It would just be a bad decision for me. I need to get out of debt. And so I need to be rigorous about the decisions that I make. And some of those decisions are going to feel very black and white. Some of those decisions are going to feel binary. To, To somebody else, your decision that I am not going to go out to eat when they say, hey, can we go out to lunch together? And you're like, sorry, I can't do it. It's going to feel like a moral judgment that you're making about them, right? It's going to sound and feel morally right and wrong. But here's the deal. If you want to get out of debt, if you want to be a good steward of your money, if you want to flourish in your life, you have to make distinctions. And even when you get out of debt, you keep making distinctions, right? You might change your distinctions a little bit. You might change your budget a little bit, but you keep sticking to a budget because you know that's how you steward your financial resources well. You know you have to keep saying yes and no to certain things. You have to keep making discernments about what is going to lead to flourishing in my life and what will not. When God makes Adam and Eve, back to Genesis 1, everything sort of goes back to to Genesis 1. Uh, His mandate to them is what? Be good stewards. (laughs) Rule over this creation as good stewards and make it flourish. (laughs) And and what are some of the first things that God does? Hey, Adam, um, I I want you to start by naming all of the animals. You want me to do what? You want me to name all the... Aren't they all just animals? No. No, they're not all just animals. I I want you to learn each one. I want you to see that each one is beautiful in their own unique and distinctive ways. And I want you to give them distinct and different names. That is an act of distinction. We see in the beginning, God makes male and female. Different and distinct. There is a clear distinction there. And there's something about this, this whole picture that is beautiful and it's creative and, and it's all wrapped up in flourishing because God will say to bring new life into this world, to, to have children, to, to, to bring new creation, to, to reproduce is, is, is going to come from the fruit of these two distinct and different people coming together, right? And then how about this one? God says to Adam, hey, Adam, uh, you can eat from any of these trees that I've given you except for that one. Why can't I eat from that one? Just don't eat from that one, Adam. Just just trust me on this one. Uh, That tree is going to give you a kind of knowledge that you are not yet ready for. So you need to say no to that tree. If you say yes to that tree right now, that will lead to death. So you need to make a distinction. I've given you all these other trees, all these other fruit. You can choose all these other things. Eat from them, choose them, but make a distinction. Don't eat from that one, right? And this is just like the business decision, right? Choose these things to do, but not those things. If you choose those things, that's going to kill your business. This is like the financial decision. Choose to spend your money on these things, but don't buy that. That's going to put you in debt right now. That's, that's going to kill you. Don't do that. I mean, this is, this is the heart of all stewardship and flourishing in our lives. There's... There's freedom to choose lots of great things, but there have to be some limits, right? There, there, there have to be some boundaries. There has to be a, a recognition that, that some things might be harmful or, or some things just might be too much or, or some things are too tempting. Some things lead to, 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 to difficult or, or, or bad, lead us down bad roads. Some things have, have difficult or bad or harmful long-term consequences that we cannot see in the short term. But we have to make choices and distinctions and set some boundaries and some limits and and stewardship and flourishing. It requires making these distinctions and these discernments. It requires making choices. We're going to do this. We're not going to do that. And so then we get to Leviticus. And perhaps when God says, hey, when it comes to eating meat, I want you to choose 
these animals, but not those animals, right? Now, now maybe now we might realize um, it's not about the exact reasoning behind the choice. I mean, maybe there is a reasoning behind the choice, but maybe it's also about God helping the people in making good choices, in making distinctions. Maybe that was necessary enough. Maybe God is is retraining them or recalibrating them or, or reforming these people to understand that creation requires distinctions, that we're going to create a new world a world that's totally different than the world you lived in in Egypt. That was a horrible world. We're going to create a new world and a new ordering for the world. And that is going to require you making distinctions. Just like I made distinctions when I created this beautiful world in the beginning, you're going to have to make distinctions as we create a new world. And and redemption, redemption requires distinctions. You've been redeemed and rescued as a people, (laughs) And maybe the whole wilderness experience is like rehab for them, right? Maybe it is God literally saying, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do when you get up in the morning because you've been in 400 years of bondage and it's been horrible. And so you need to go through this sort of rehab. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do when you get up in the morning. I'm going to tell you what food to eat, where to go to the bathroom, where to set up your camp, where to worship. I'm going to tell you what your schedule is going to look like, what you can do, what you can't do. And it's going to sound really restrictive. It's going to sound really binary, really black and white. And people that are reading this 3,000 years ago are going to be, 3,000 years in the future, they're they're going to be freaked out by this because it's going to sound so restrictive. But this is what you need right now for the sake of your redemption. Maybe God is also forming them into a people to bring flourishing into our world and to be good stewards. Maybe, maybe what God is saying is, I want your relationships to flourish. I want your families to flourish. I want justice to flourish here. I even want the land, the land that you take care of. I want it to flourish. I want you to live with one another and I want you to live in creation in this, this flourishing kind of way, in the way that it was always intended, in the way that you're going to model for the entire world. And so I need to reteach you what it means to make distinctions, what it means to set healthy boundaries, to, to, to have some limits, to be discerning. So maybe don't eat all the animals. <laughs> Let's start there. Maybe just eat these animals, not those animals. Now, let me pause there. Do you start to see how distinctions, the act of making distinctions is not negative? The the distinctions are not not rules that are binding and and restrictive and and limiting, right? That that all of these distinctions that are happening all throughout Leviticus, that at times we don't understand, down to the very details of life, that maybe these distinctions are actually creative. And they're redemptive. And that they're about stewardship and they're about flourishing. They're not meant to be binding and limiting. In many ways, they're freeing and liberating. (laughs) In the same way that that anyone who's gone through rehab will look back and say, yeah, yeah, it felt binding and limiting for 30 days, but it freed me from the thing that was truly binding and limiting and destructive in my life. It was actually liberating. That's what Leviticus is trying to do for these people who are not only going to experience God's new creation, experience his redempting, experience his flourishing, but they're going to bring that message to an entire world that's badly in need of all those things. Now, let's skip ahead. And, uh, We're going to actually come back to some of these ideas in just a little bit, but I want to skip ahead because when we get to Jesus's day, which is some 12 or 1300 years later, right? And uh, some of these Leviticus rules um, in Jesus's day are taken very seriously by Jews living in Israel 
Israel is not its own nation. It's part of the Roman Empire, but but the Jewish people are living, um, or, or most of the Jewish people are living there in Israel, or, or at least some. We don't know the exact percentages. Um, and, and these Leviticus rules aren't always taken seriously throughout all of Israel's history, from when they first given to to the time of Jewish's day. But in Jesus uh, Jesus's day, but in Jesus's day, uh, at least some of these rules are taken really seriously, uh, particularly. The rules about skin disease that make someone unclean or, or taboo, and then these food laws, which animals to eat, which ones not to eat. In fact, it's these laws uh, called dietary restrictions, um, which today we, we often just say, uh, we, we refer to or people refer to as keeping kosher. Uh, this word kosher uh, is a Hebrew word. It doesn't actually come from the Old Testament. It comes from some rabbis later. But it's referring to this whole idea of eat these these foods, but not these foods. Um, by Jesus' day, these dietary restrictions had actually become this, this badge of honor. There were many Jewish leaders, not all, but many who kept these laws who kept these dietary restrictions, and I'm, 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 I just sat up tall in my chair, and I'm kind of puffing out my chest, because that's how they did it. They sort of puffed out their chest, and they kept these laws, and they were proud of it. And then in order to make sure they kept all these dietary restrictions, they created new laws and new traditions and new rules, and they sort of did it all in a really prideful and an arrogant way. We do not eat these foods that all the dirty, sinful, ungodly Gentiles eat, right? It had this, this sense of this pride and arrogance. And, and yes, it was the thing that distinguished the Jewish people. It set them apart. It made them different and distinct. It was, it was this distinction. But, but in Jesus' day, it often had the very opposite effect of its original intention, Original intention was this, be different from other people. Eat different foods because these distinctions are important. And as a people, you are going to need to be different because you're going to bring light and love and compassion and forgiveness and truth and justice and liberation and equality. You're going to bring all of these things to other people. You are going to help them and serve them and love them. In fact, Israel is called God's servant. Isaiah describes it this way. Israel is God's servant to bring God's light to all people. So that was always the intention right? You are to be different in order to love and serve and bring my healing and my wholeness into the world. But many Jewish leaders in Jesus's day, they didn't really care about helping other people. They didn't care about forgiving or showing compassion on other people. They didn't care about bringing God's light into other people. Here's what they cared about, judging other people, looking down on other people because they are not like us. They were not chosen the way we were. They were not elected the way we are. They are not favored by God the way we are. They don't follow all the rules that we follow. They're not godly like we are. And so you can see how these these markers of identity in Leviticus, this is how you're going to be different. You do the, They've become badges of pride by Jesus' time. Now, of course, there's a, there's a huge warning in there for all of us. And so in, in Jesus' ministry, what you see him doing at times is challenging the Jewish leaders. And, and part of the way he does that is connected directly to some of these laws in Leviticus. So here's one quick story, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, a man with leprosy, and the word, the Greek word that's used there can mean really just, it's just a generic word for any kind of skin disease. So it, this, is, this is a description of someone with the kind of skin disease that Leviticus uh, chapters 13 and 14 are talking about. So a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then it says, Jesus reached out his hand And he touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. 
and immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. So Jesus heals this man, and in healing him, just remember, he's not just healing the physical disease or the ailment. I mean, that's what we focus on because that's miraculous and medical and all. Like We're thinking in that way. But according to Leviticus, he's making this man clean. He's made pure now. He's, He's made whole. He's restored. He's no longer unclean. He's no longer impure. He's no longer taboo. Now, how does Jesus do this? He touches the man in order to do this. And that in and of itself would have been taboo. I mean, strictly speaking, you're not supposed to do that, right? That's what Leviticus tells you not to do. Don't touch people who are taboo, who have these skin diseases. They should be quarantined, right? They should be doing serious social distancing. And Jesus should go nowhere near this man, especially as a rabbi. That's who Jesus is. He's a teacher. He's this traveling rabbi. And Jesus, I mean, here's what all the other rabbis and all the other Jewish leaders are thinking. Jesus needs to use this opportunity to point to this man and talk about how unclean and impure he is. And then he can use that as an illustration to also talk about how unclean and impure all these horrible Roman Gentiles are that are living in our land. But Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus is challenging that entire way of thinking. By showing grace and compassion, by reaching out to touch this man. And as he does it, there's a sense that he's flaunting the rules and the instructions of Leviticus. But I think it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't doing that at all. He's actually taking Leviticus very seriously. Because in the very next verse, it says this, Then Jesus said to the man, he's just healed him, See that you don't tell anyone. I don't know why Jesus tells him not to tell anyone. Maybe there's a, a humility here. Like, don't be proud about this. Don't go in around, you know, but. But then he says, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Jesus is literally referring directly to the book of Leviticus. Go fo- the, the tradition is that Moses wrote down all of Leviticus. So go follow the rules of Leviticus. Your disease is now gone. So you need to go show yourself to the priest. That's what it says. You need to offer a sacrifice. Notice how it's called a gift, right? The gift that you're supposed to bring, the sacrifice that you're supposed to bring when you've been healed and made whole, this kind of purification sacrifice, go offer that. Do the things you're supposed to do. And then he will, according to the rules of Leviticus, declare you clean. So it's it's really clear. Jesus is not showing up and saying, hey, 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 just so you know, everybody, all those Leviticus rules huge mistake, right? We should have never tried that. Like the, the, the religious leaders have just taken that in the wrong direction. So I'm just going to throw out all those rules because they just did not work. People are doing the exact opposite of the way the rules were intended. That's not what Jesus says at all. I mean, he could have said that maybe, but that's not what he ever says. And that doesn't seem to be his posture. At times, yes, he pushes the envelope when it comes to the letter of these laws and these instructions, but he's always doing it to challenge the pride, to challenge the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, and to challenge their ways of using the law that were actually contrary to how God intended it. So that's important to see all that and to recognize that and to see that even in this place where he sort of pushes the envelope, he goes back and he says, hey, now don't forget, follow the rules of Leviticus. They're important. Follow those rules. All of that's important in light of one more passage I want to read you. This is Mark chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, so Jesus is not in Jerusalem, but these are Pharisees, which is a leadership group, and Jewish teachers of the law from Jerusalem, and they were sort of known as the ones who are most rigid about all of these laws and all of these rules and following them intricately. They they gathered around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples or his followers eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then Mark says this in parentheses. He says, because Mark is writing this book later and he's writing it to people 
who might be Gentiles later down the road, who might not understand all these laws. So he kind of says, side note, parentheses, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So, side note, if you're reading this and you don't understand why the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are questioning Jesus because his disciples don't wash their their hands, they don't use hand sanitizer, right? If you're not understanding that, let me give you let me let me fill you in. They, the teachers of the law at that time, created all of these extra rules, extra traditions, extra instructions, because the idea was Gentiles are unclean. They're just unclean by default, right? So anything a Gentile touches is unclean. So if there's Gentiles in the marketplace and you get out of the marketplace, and remember, there's Roman you know, military officers and Gentiles living all throughout. If there's Gentiles there and, uh, and they happen to touch you know, something and, uh, and then you touch that something in the marketplace an hour later, right? They touch a cup and then you touch a cup. And then an hour after that, you eat food with the hand that touched the cup. Like you're now totally unclean, right? And, and it's, it's kind of fascinating how they're actually viewing this through the lens of like germs and, and, a, and a virus. And it's like, and they're washing their hands. And, 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 and if you touch this thing, you can catch, I mean, it's, it's just, it's fascinating how they're thinking through all this, but that's their thinking. If a, Gentile was there, they touched something, you touched that thing, then you eat something. And so they're creating all these extra rules to make sure they don't come in contact with anything that a Gentile might have possibly come in contact with, right? And the problem is because they associated anything taboo in the Leviticus laws with sin, right? God's disapproval is what uncleanness is, right? If somebody's unclean, it's because God is judging them. It's because they're wrong and they're dirty and they're rotten sinners. And if the Jewish leaders only knew the book of Job, they wouldn't think this way, right? Job had a terrible skin disease. And for 36 chapters, his friends told him over and over and over, Job, it's because you've sinned. Job, it's because you've done something wrong. Job, God is judging you with this skin disease. And God emphatically at the book of Job at the very end says, no, you guys are the one that's wrong. Job hasn't sinned at all. Job isn't being judged. Job has done nothing wrong. I could not have more approval and favor toward my servant Job. His skin disease has nothing to do with with sin or ungodliness. But the Jewish leaders miss all that, right? Unclean to them equals sin. It equals wrong. It equals judged by God. And so they're creating all these extra laws and extra rules to make sure no one happens to touch anything that you know a, a Gentile might have happened to touch. And so they notice Jesus and his, Gentile, Jesus and his followers uh, don't follow the extra rules, right? You know the hand-washing rule? You know the hand-sanitizer rule? They're not following that rule. And so verse 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? In other words, why don't they follow the rules? And, And in fact, they know the rules aren't the law rules, it's not the Old Testament rules, they're the traditions. But in their minds, the, the traditions are equal now to the Old Testament. So why aren't they following the rules, Jesus? And this is great. Verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. <laughs> and then Jesus just goes off on them. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the book of Isaiah. He says, basically, you're not obeying God's commands. You're not even really obeying Leviticus. You're just obeying your own rules, your own traditions. And then he starts like giving examples of things that they're doing where they're just totally flouting God's actual law and following their own prideful rules. And there's a crowd there that's listening. And that's probably good. Maybe that even protects Jesus Because the crowds are tracking with Jesus, right? The crowds most of the time liked Jesus. I mean, the crowds were made up of all these 
just sort of common people that, that sometimes felt just as judged by their, their own Jewish leaders as anyone else did, right? And so Jesus starts calling out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. And I mean, no wonder whenever Jesus went and there were crowds and, and, and teaching and, and Jewish leaders, there's no wonder he would create such a stir. And then Jesus says something really important to the crowds. Verse 14, he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And this is a huge statement. Because remember, the discussion is about these rules that are really all grounded in Leviticus 11, clean and unclean, what foods you can eat, what foods you can't eat, right? And Jesus is basically saying the kinds of things that that make you unclean if you touch them, the kinds of things that defile you if you eat them, Jesus basically says, it's not really about what you eat. That's not what defiles you. It never was. And Jesus isn't saying that all those distinctions in Leviticus weren't helpful. And he's not saying those weren't bad idea. Those were all a bad idea. He's not saying that the laws in Leviticus didn't serve an important purpose, right? Because in Matthew 8, he heals a guy and he says, like, go follow the rules. Do what Leviticus says. He quotes Leviticus on plenty of other occasions, always as something to be followed, right? The distinctions are good and they're important and they served a purpose. But it's almost as if Jesus is saying in this one significant moment, hey, if you want to know what actually defiles you, like in the sinful kind of way defiles you, in the way that these leaders keep talking about, like if you really want to know what does harm to you, what can hurt you, what can hurt others, what can hurt your witness, what can hurt your relationship with God, what can, what can actually displease God, if you want to know what that is, it, it, it really has nothing to do with what you eat. It's not about what you put into your body. It's about what comes out. And then he goes on to say this, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Jesus probably could have kept going on and on and on, right? All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It's like Jesus is saying, you want to know what sin is? Here's what sin is. (laughs) You want to know what destroys your soul? You want to know what's going to destroy your relationships? You want to know what can destroy your family, what can destroy your community, what can destroy this world? You want to know what kind of creates the kind of systems that enslaved the Israelite people in Egypt, it's greed, it's deceit, it's arrogance, it's stealing from other people, it's sleeping around, it's envy, it's all of these things. These are the things that ultimately defile you. And tucked away in this little story, when Mark is writing about this and sharing this with people in his book, years later, he makes one more little parenthetical comment. Jesus is explaining all of this to his disciples uh, later, and he basically says, like, this is the stuff that you eat, and that's not what actually defiles you. And Mark pauses at this point to whoever is reading his story, and he says this, verse 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, we think that Mark was probably the first gospel account written. It's probably written sometime in the 60s, um, A.D., that is, not the 1960s. (laughs) It's written in the 60s A.D. Jesus was crucified about 30 A.D. Uh, So this is 30 years later. And what Mark is saying is that the earliest followers of Jesus, who were all Jewish, by the way, good Jews, that either kept the law pretty well or were always feeling guilty because they didn't keep the law very well, but they were all Jews. And what Mark is saying is that these earliest Jewish followers of Jesus within a few decades had come to believe that what Jesus had been saying in this teaching and in other teachings is this. 
you don't actually have to follow the food laws anymore. You can eat whatever foods you want. There's no more clean and unclean. There's no more pure and taboo, at least when it comes to food. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus seem to throw out this really big system that for some Jewish people by his day, it had become wrapped up in their entire faith? And why did Jesus' earliest followers believe that this is what he intended to do? Well, let me give you a couple thoughts, and I know we're super long today, but give you a couple thoughts and then we'll wrap this whole thing up. I don't think Jesus seemingly did away with these purity laws because they just didn't work, right? I mean, there's too much teaching in the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, from Jesus and from others that upholds the value of making distinctions, of being different, of, of embracing some practices and some rituals and some habits that are different than the way other people practice, right? So this whole idea of being distinct at times is very valued. It's very important. It's not like Jesus is throwing that idea out. So, so one I thought is what Jesus is doing in saying all foods are clean. You can eat whatever you want now. We don't have to live by those rules anymore. What, what Jesus is doing is, is, is sort of illustrating a next step in the evolution or the unfolding of God's plan to bring his redemption in the world. And that when God starts with, with the people of Israel, you can see this larger development that's taking place through, through using the people of Israel and over the course of their history. And it's a bit like when you have kids. <laughs> when your kids are young, you have to be really clear about distinctions and boundaries. right? You say this, you, you say things like this. This is our yard. <laughs> Here it is. This is the road. There's a very clear difference between the two. You can play in the yard. Do not go near the road. Well, why can't we play in the road? Well, here's a whole bunch of reasons. You know, and then you give them all the reasons. Well, we'll be really careful. Can't we still play in the road if we're really careful? And, you know, as the parent, you always say, like, I don't care how careful you say you're going to be. You cannot play in the road right now. It's just that simple. It's that black and white. You cannot play in the road. And as a parent, you just have to be that clear. Why? Because you love your kids too much to not be that clear. Or maybe you say this, you know, you can't play with knives or you can't play with matches, right? And you have to be clear on those things. You draw very clear lines, very clear distinctions. This is a spoon. This is a knife. One is okay. One is off limits. It's not off limits to everyone. It's not off limits to mom and dad. It's off limits for you right now. And of course, the analogy is that as children grow up, right, the boundaries can change. They learn the distinctions. They learn wisdom. They learn about inherent dangers. They learn how to discern. They learn how to make wise choices. And so there come times when you say to your kids, okay, you can light the candle, you know, now. Uh, you can use a knife now, right? I'll, I'll teach you how to use a knife carefully. I think you're old enough to learn that now. Now you can go in the road. Now I trust that you understand how to be careful when you're in the road, right? Now there's still some boundaries. There, there's still important distinctions. Even when you grow up, you're, you're always learning how to to make good distinctions, how to, how to draw helpful boundaries. But, but the older you get, hopefully the more you develop wisdom and you gain insight from others and, and you learn how to have a humble posture and not think you always know everything and, 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 and you learn how to, to see from other people's lives what healthy and good boundaries are, right? But when you're three years old, you don't have any of that. So your parents have to put everything in very black and white terms, and so some people read the Bible and they see perhaps that's the evolution or, or the unfolding of what God is doing. People need to learn how to make distinctions because after all, distinctions and boundaries are good. But some distinctions and boundaries that God gave to the people of Israel were helpful early on. But by the time of Jesus, Jesus says, hey, <clears throat> we can move past those now. 
you don't have to make distinctions about foods anymore. All foods are clean. You can eat any food you want. There's other distinctions that are more important now. Now, there's one other idea that's super important in the New Testament. It's sort of the second way of thinking about this. And uh, it's the realization by Jesus' earlier followers that God's mission was always for the sake of other people. It was never just about Israel. And this idea is all throughout the Old Testament. God's mission is always for other people. Go read Psalm 67, and you see it all throughout the Psalm. But in Leviticus and in Exodus, it was really important for God, who has just saved this group of people, to create a new and unique and distinct group of people who could present a unique and distinct and different way of life to all other peoples. And that distinctiveness early on was wrapped up in ethnicity. These were all ethnic Hebrew or Israelite people. And so they wrap it up in ethnicity like we eat these foods, right? And we have these rituals and and that's what makes us God's people. That's what makes us Israelites. Nobody else does it this way. And it's almost as if 1,300 years later, Jesus is coming along and he's saying like, hey, hey guys, don't forget, this was never about ethnicity. <laughs> this was never about a closed community. This was never about just Israel. This is not just about us. And so Jesus is pushing envelopes by hanging out with Gentiles all the time, right? And people are looking at Jesus going, what in the world? Why is he hanging out? They're dirty. They're unclean, right? Jesus talks to this Roman military. I mean, talk about the height of ungodliness, a Roman military officer. And then Jesus praises this guy for having more faith than any Jew. Jesus tells stories about God's kingdom being full of Gentiles. And then the last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he leaves is this, hey, I want you to go tell people everywhere about who I am and why I came. I want you to tell Jewish people right here in Jerusalem, right here in Judea, right there in Samaria, right? Because they're still important. They've been at the center of this thing for a long time. But just so you know, it's not just about them. It's not even just about you. It's always been about the whole world. So I want you to go tell people from all nations, from all tribes and all tongues. Now, if that's the mission, if that's the goal, if that's what God is up to, and in light of what Jesus has already said about food laws and purities, right? It's not about what you eat. It's about how you live and how you treat other people. And, and what defiles you is not what goes into you, but what comes out of you. In light of all of that, in light of the broader mission for all people, what purpose do these rigid ethnic distinctions serve anymore? These things that have become badges of pride anyways, right? These, these food laws that many Jews are wearing as a badge of pride. These purity laws. There's other things wrapped up in this, like circumcision as well. These things that marked off the Jewish people as different from everyone else. If we are now going around and telling everyone else about the good news, are these distinctions still helpful? Or is it possible that they're harmful? And Paul will come along and he'll say, they're incredibly harmful. I want to go tell Gentiles about this new life that I found in Jesus and that they can find in Jesus too, but I can't even sit down at a table and eat a meal with them because they eat different foods than I do and because people see them as dirty and unclean and that's what they're being told. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then you have Peter, and Peter has his own experience, and, and we don't have time to read about it because it's, we're super long, right? It's in Acts chapter 10. Go read about it yourself. But there's this crazy experience that happens to Peter where God makes it super clear to Peter, it's time to set aside the food laws, Peter. I mean, God literally says to Peter, it's not about what you eat anymore. 
It's not about unclean, right? Gentiles are not dirty or unclean just because they eat different foods. The laws, essentially what Peter begins to understand, those laws were important for a time. In fact, they were important for a long time. But God is doing something new. He's doing something new in Jesus. And so you see how significant it is that these early followers of Jesus recognize that in order to live out his mission for all people, Gentiles included, the distinctions and the boundaries that were once helpful are probably not helpful anymore and certainly not needed. But here's important. Do you see how that does also not invalidate how important and helpful and necessary these distinctions were in the beginning, right? That's the lesson of Leviticus today, right? Distinctions are necessary. They're helpful. Boundaries are not limiting. They're actually liberating, right? Ask any alcoholic who's gone through rehab. And over time, as wisdom grows, sometimes you might rethink the boundaries. Sometimes there are new boundaries, right? Uh, especially when it's clear God is doing something new. But there's also times when the boundaries do not change, right? With the food laws, Jesus seemed to say, this is going to change. I'm doing something new to take this good news to all people. We don't need these food laws anymore, right? This boundary is no longer needed. Here's what's really interesting. There's some other stuff in Leviticus where Jesus seems to say and communicate the exact opposite. Nope. That's an important distinction. That's an important boundary. That's not going to change. That is something that always needs to be protected. But of course, now we're getting ahead of ourselves. And we'll have to come back to that idea in a few weeks. So let's wrap up there. Thanks for hanging with me today. I know it was long. Uh, Join us next time. We're going to read chapter 16 in Leviticus, a chapter that just might be the most important chapter in the entire book. Thanks for listening.